right, today is December 7th, 2015, and I'm sitting here with Dr. Stephen Wolf, and with me is Melissa Bloom, a physical therapist, neuro neurologic specialist, and uh, we're going to have a conversation with Dr. Wolf about all kinds of things. So, thank you for agreeing to, to work with us. Sure. And I've already warned you, it's not going to be a repeat of... Uh, the Ann Shumway Cook Lecture. Got that. <laughs> and um, I'm free to say what I want right now? Absolutely. So the only people who call me Dr. Wolf are my family members. That's not obligatory. <laughs> so we have to say Dr. Wolf, or we just say Steve. Uh, we can say Steve. That makes me feel much better. Okay. Great. Okay, we're Wonderful. Good. All right, so you became a physical therapist after graduating from Columbia in 1966, and then... I know, Boston University, you got a master's in 1969, and then you rapidly transitioned to research, and you earned your PhD at Emory in 1973. Why'd you become a PT? Well, I became a PT uh, because I wanted to do something that involved helping folks uh, that was much more personalized than medicine. Mm -hmm. And uh, I thought physical therapy would be a very good option. And I became a PT because I wanted to treat patients. In fact, I did for my first two years in the U.S. Public Health Service. Mm -hmm. And while I was in um, the Public Health Service back in 1966 to 68, I was in an environment that was way ahead of its time, one in which we didn't get prescriptions from physicians. The mandate was real simple. Was, here's a patient, evaluate and treat them. And I had not been exposed to this degree of openness during my clinical affiliations. And the response I, asked, I received when I asked about prescriptions, it was very simple. You're supposed to know what to do, not us. So in that context, it was very common for interns and residents in particular to come up to the clinic and observe what we're doing with their patients. And in that context, got asked a lot of questions. And amongst those is, well, why are you doing what you're doing? How, how does it work? And so often, I didn't know. It bothered me <laughs> to the point. <laughs> oh, wait for that to pass. That's not, not, I'm, I'm sharing, I'm using Sarah Blanton's office because it's much quieter on the side. Oh yeah, the side. I saw that. I was the, like, uh, the, the and she, of course, wasn't expecting the thing. <laughs> I suppose Sarah just wanted her input in. I'm wondering if I just take this off. Because I'm just going to work now. See if it mutes. I imagine it will. Will it ring off the hook? I should get unplug it at the back, maybe. Oh, that's a great idea. Let's see. There's a release button somewhere. There you go. We'll just stop. All right. Oh, okay. okay. So hold on. Let me run through this. Okay. No. And often I was you didn't asked, know the answer. Didn't, and that bothered me to the point where I decided I had to go back to school to start to learn more. And that inquiry process simply stayed with me. What a lot of folks don't realize is that while I was in the public health service and while I was in graduate school getting my master's in PT, I moonlighted running a PT clinic in a nursing home in Roxbury, Massachusetts. Did that for two years before I wound up going back down to, back to Atlanta. Um, and what 
other folks don't realize is that for most of my research years, mm -hmm. I spent a minimum of an equivalent of 20% time treating patients. Wow. In fact, some of the ideas that have evolved over these many years came from suggestions that patients had or observations that were made by trying to work with them. But there's always been this assumption that you have to be labeled and categorized something, which I think is unfortunate. So I'm very proud of the fact, to answer your question, that while I may be an educator and a researcher, I continue to treat patients until about three years ago. What made you stop? Just too committed to the things I'm doing now, simply don't have enough enough time. I'd like to think it's not age-related, <laughs> but, but, but more uh, some time commitments. I've, as you probably know, I run several clinical trials and have become involved in other activities that I think are meaningful, such as development of, of an app, and now the Frontiers in Rehab Science and Technology Initiative through the APTA, which are very time-consuming activities. So one of those patient questions or observations by, by a patient that kind of guided your inquiry, do you remember one in particular? Well, absolutely. One of them was, um, I know that I've had a stroke and that some of my muscles are tight, but I don't believe those muscles have to be totally relaxed in order for me to regain function. Now, you may recall that there was a time that many of us were, tra were, were trained to believe that a precursor to the restitution of meaningful function demanded that we inhibit hyperactive or spastic muscles as a precursor to engaging the antagonist weakened muscles. Right. And in fact, that's how our entire EMG biofeedback initiative got started back in the um, late 70s, early 80s. Mm -hmm. uh, working on that basis, and I think this is a story worth telling because it, I think, was a game changer of sorts. We did that. We did studies for the upper extremity and lower extremity stroke patients and um, went through this entire procedure that was based upon notions of reciprocal inhibition and uh, precursors of downtraining hyperactive muscles before one recruits mm -hmm. weakened antagonist muscles. And at the end of the day, when all was said and done, we looked at the relationship between training uh, measured at least electromyographically and function measured mostly in time-based activities that individuals could succeed and restore the use of an impaired upper extremity in chronic stroke as well as long as 20 years post-stroke. And the predictors of those changes were not the inhibition of hyperactive muscles, but the change in the ratio of activity between hyperactive muscles and weakened antagonists to, to the point where individuals could initiate movements out of synergy by at least 20 degrees at their elbow and begin to raise their wrist and begin to open their fingers, which became the fundamental basis for what we call constraint-induced movement therapy today. Now, one of my enterprising graduate students at the time was a chap named Stuart Ben McLeod, who is now chair of the PT program at Delaware and now is going on to a, an associate deanship role. So we published papers in the PT Journal of our observations and got a lot of flack because we were suggesting that the, the, the notion of predominant inhibition of hyperactive muscles was not necessarily increased a precursor to training for function. In fact, one could make the patient aware of this 
coactivation, but train towards function, and in that context, attempt to change these relationships, which is precisely what patients did, because although we, we trained them, when we looked at their activity in the context of real-life movements, they were coactivated. And that was a pretty bold thing to say in 1983, uh, but that's what we saw, and uh, took a lot of heat for those ob observations, but nonetheless con continued forward with our next iteration, which became what we call forced use of the hemiparetic upper extremity. So how did that go with um, the, the things that were being discovered and, and shared at, in the early 80s about motor learning and uh, functional recovery? Well, I think that was the emergence time of, the, of a concept which was foreign to all of us prior to that mm -hmm. plasticity, functional plasticity of the nervous system. And that, in fact, one could see changes, both in animal models of stroke and other neurological deficits, and in humans, and that there was this uh, possi possibility of relearning motion, uh, that it could be done under a variety of circumstances, mm -hmm. and that when you begin to drill down and look at the physiological correlates, they weren't as presumptuous as we thought they w were stated to be in the past. And I think if one goes back to, for example, some of the original writings of, of, of the Bobaths, one will see that the information about the relationship of antagonist muscles and this need to inhibit hyperactive muscles before recruiting the antagonists were all extracted from animal models. And that was very, very important and significant at the time it was done. But what we failed to do in some systematic way was to externally validate the observations that were taken from animal models as they applied to the human condition. And I think what we're discovering in the 80s is that when we look at elements of motor control and motor learning or relearning, that, that those could be accomplished with modifications of the mandates that were we were instructed in prior to that time. So that's, I think the, we were evolving into this recognition that we could do a lot to improve movement capabilities under pathological conditions that uh, were more geared towards functional activity than the specific isolation of individual muscles or muscle groups and joints. I think at that time there was a, a lot of research going on about um, especially lower extremity reflexes and their role in balance, especially with perturbation and things like that. What was what were you doing at that time? Because I know you did some some balance reflexes research. Yeah, well, there are two things that you one that I know you know about, and that deals with this whole notion of uh, of uh, reflex conditioning. Uh, when one of our colleagues, Rick Siegel, was here, um, and we had finished some of the biofeedbacks, EMG biofeedback studies, we raised a real simple question: Why train individual muscles when you might be able to train reflexes? And one of our colleagues, John Wolpaw. Um, had been doing this in animal models and uh, met John at several meetings and he suggested we try this in humans and spent quite a bit of time trying to condition reflexes of upper and lower extremities. Um, and to make the, the fairly long story short, uh, one could demonstrate that indeed um, when the central nervous system was not too profoundly disrupted, at least at cortical and subcortical levels, you could indeed train um, a stretch reflex of the upper extremity, up-train it or down-train it, enabled by individuals or individuals who had quadriparesis following spinal cord injury. But it was very difficult to do that when there are cognitive deficits that impact 
individual's ability to take feedback and modify their motor outputs under reflex conditions. With postural perturbations, we saw that indeed you can elicit long and short latency reflexes. They could be modified, but in order for them to have long-lasting uh, impact, that activity needed to be trained for perhaps longer periods of time. The manifestation of that today is that now, as you probably know, there are uh, Aoki Thompson, who worked with John Wopaw in uh, Albany, is now at Medical University of South Carolina, is actually doing stretch reflex conditioning in spinal cord injury using the H reflex um, in folks with that. And now I, we spoke with her last week and starting it in stroke. So the, the notion that we may be able to con control joints of the lower extremity under perturbation conditions or improve ambulation and movement control is, um, is not dead. It's being explored quite, uh, quite aggressively right now. So I think a lot of that um, uh, evolved from, uh, from those observations. I'm smiling because uh, we saw posturography in the late 80s as a center of pressure feedback device since we had this interest in feedback and, in mm -hmm. fact, wanted to determine whether you could use the resolution of multiple force transducers to look at these um, uh, manifestations of, of, of uh, force resolution, center pressure resolution, um, and uh, train folks to increase the postural sway of those older folks who are fallers. And indeed, as you well know, we can, you can do that, but at the same time, we happen to have a gentleman here at Emory who's a Tai Chi grandmaster, and he wanted to compare uh, posturography to, to Tai Chi, and wellness education is a control for exercise at a time when Alternative medicine is still in its profound infancy at the NIH, and we submitted a proposal as mm -hmm. part of what became known as the Fixit Trials to um, compare uh, Tai Chi to uh, um, posturography and argue that here we have uh, low-tech, high-tech, multiple people, individualized, um, uh, an intervention that's designed to have multiple impacts on an, indi on an individual as they're autonomic responses um, uh, as well as their postural responses versus posturography which is designed to correct postural aberrations. They're almost diametrically opposed and uh, fortunately uh, that proposal was one of eight around the country that was accepted and little did we realize at the time that Tai Chi would turn out to be the most potent intervention in the country to delay the onset mm -hmm. of falls and that then necessitated 12 years of study on the mechanisms. Going back to the question again, that's great. Let's, let's train older folks to do Tai Chi and um, see if it has an impact on falls. And obviously it did. Um, but then the question was, how does it work? And, and so we explored that with collaborators at Georgia Tech and found out that what appears to happen is that those individuals, older individuals who are fallers, um, are able to improve their postural control because they create tight linkages between their center of mass and their postural sway is measured by their center of pressure. That is much more temporary linked just in sway or in gait initiation than older adults who fall that don't go through that kind of training. Mm -hmm. So there is some kind of um, probably cortical um, uh, recognition um, that uh, becomes more apparent in this what some people refer to as movement and meditation that folks go through when they're going and doing this Tai Chi, and perhaps the added effect of 
learning um, movement and movement control through imagery rather than specific instruction, which is what Tai Chi does a lot of. What we also have learned, and one of the emphases now for all postural control, and you know this too, and Tai Chi is just a manifestation of that, is that we tend to underestimate the importance of cognitive domain in through with divided attention and other resources that are critical to maintaining postural control and reducing or delaying the onset of falls, uh, whether it's a Tai Chi intervention or any other for that matter. So, as you know, a lot of our efforts are now directed towards these behavioral elements that need to be considered and trained. So, if we had to do it all over again, the one question that we would have asked, and I think people should be asking of their clients, uh, if they are studying falls and fall behaviors, is um, if they remember what they were thinking of when they fell. Specifically, was your attention truly divided so that you could not use your, your, your resources to evoke an appropriate motoric response to what could be seen as a perturbation because the sensory processing of the visual and or auditory cues for that particular perturbation simply were not there because you couldn't share your existing resources to make the appropriate response. And again, so I'm getting way off target. No, right? you're, you're actually I'm moving right down the list in my hand. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> part of what you were talking about there, we, you know, um, when you were talking about um, your one study and then it made you think about, you know, the kind of the why is that happening and what we were, you know, talking about was the, um, do you think a lot of times as physical therapists we get you know, hopefully people are using the best research and stuff like that, but if they're ignoring that basic science underlying factor and the why this stuff is happening, do you think that we're missing out as neurophysical therapists if people are not looking into that basic science underlay? I, I think we are, and I, I, as our resources continue to dwindle mm -hmm. and we're queried more and more to justify further treatment, it stands to reason that those who are decision makers are going to say, well, on what basis do you think you can help this patient with this problem if you're given X number more sessions? Well, one can go to the evidence, and inevitably there's, there are going to be people who don't understand movement pathology but have to make these decisions, and I fear that we're encountering more and more decision makers who come with MBA degrees with no understanding of the, the uh, uh, human suffering um, or rehabilitation at all, uh, who will ask the question then, well, Okay, if you're saying that, what's going on? Help me to understand what this, how this person's getting better. And inevitably, that makes us think backwards to some of the fundamentals that underline the decisions that we make. And I think it behooves us to wear our teacher hats, whether it's in the classroom or in the clinic, to, to emphasize those aspects of treatment that allow therapists, especially those with less experience, to, to, to better understand um, uh, what they're doing and to challenge themselves. So how did you get the inspiration for the constraint-induced uh, program? And it's all, all its, uh, its evolution. Uh, it's an interesting, that's a very interesting story. Um, so I was a member of the, what used to be called the Biofeedback Society of America way back from my days of first coming here as a graduate student. My mentor was a chap named John Basmation, who was very big in EMG biofeedback, and some people had described at one time or another as the, the father of EMG feedback. 
And he introduced me to the Biofeedback Society of America. I would attend those meetings. And of course, there are various forms of biofeedback. And you get to meet all these folks, and you have that interest in common. One of the individuals I met was a chap named Ed Taub. And Ed um, was at the biofeedback meetings, not because of the work he had done with deafferentation of monkeys, which I'll get to in a moment, but because um, he also was interested in feedback, specifically changes in peripheral skin temperature as a basis for potentially treating Raynaud's disease in the absence of medications. And I had this interest in EMG feedback, and he was doing these deafferentation studies in, in monkeys um, and, and suggested that maybe we ought to consider making folks who've had strokes use their impaired upper extremity by immobilizing their better. Um, and that seemed pretty in intriguing to me. At the same time, um, I started looking through the literature, and that thought, as is so often the case, was not new at all. It was actually first suggested in 1917 by Agden and Franz. Hmm. <laughs> and the way that came about, uh, to divert just for a moment, is uh, he was doing cortical lesions in monkeys and then observing their behaviors in their native cages to see whether they'd use their impaired, um, their hemiparetic arm or leg. And so quite serendipitously, as is often the case, tied down their better limb and found that they would still begin to navigate their cages with their impaired upper extremity. And he suggested that this be a treatment approach applied to veterans returning from the First World War who had sustained head injuries. That idea was so outrageous uh, and perceived by the public as being something that was unfair and beyond comprehension for war veterans that the idea literally lay dormant for about 30 or 40 years until it was resurrected again in animal models. Um, and one of Dr. Taub's uh, mentors um, there's a chap named Berman who started doing some of these experiments and Ed followed up on them. So at the same time he was interested in biofeedback and peripheral vascular problems, he was also interested in pursuing and was pursuing uh, his work in deafferentation, which is not quite the same as a central nervous system lesion. Was the 1978, um, was the guy that rec made those recommendations, was he, what was his background? So Ed Tell? Oh, was that so, the one so, in 1917? No, no, no. no, 1917, they were both neurologists. Oh, they were neurologists. Were, okay. Yes, European neurologists, and, were making, making some, and very famous people in, in their own right. Um, so Ed, uh, unfortunately, one of the side effects <clears throat> of the afferenting a limb is that a, a monkey begins to see that limb as a foreign object and will eat it, start to gnaw at the limb. Oh. And that requires a great deal of care on the part of the caregivers uh, for those animals. And Dr. Taub had a very uh, viable, unsuccessful research laboratory in Silver Springs, Maryland. He hired a gentleman to be the director of those animal labs. And Unbeknownst to Dr. Taub, he, um, Alex Pacchio is his name, uh, was pretty much set against this kind of behavior. And on um, uh, Labor Day weekend, 1981, um, strung up these animals um, and exposed their bandages and literally had them 
tied to instruments in the lab and called the police who raided the Taub laboratories. And that was the so-called Silver Spring Monkeys incident that led to the founding of PETA by Alex Pacquio. So that led to a great deal of turmoil, as you might imagine. Um, and uh, the Society for Neuroscience spent quite a bit of money supporting Dr. Taub and all that was at stake in um, the claims that were being made against him. But uh, one of the conditions of uh, the uh, exoneration of Dr. Taub is that he no longer work with animals. And he moved to University of Alabama, Birmingham. It was during that time um, that uh, he had suggested we pursue this work in stroke survivors. <clears throat> but sometimes forgotten is that the suggestion was actually made before the Silver Springs Monkeys incident because our first publication was in July of 1981, mm -hmm. three months before mm -hmm. the Silver Spring Monkeys incident as a case study in the PT Journal. Subsequent to that we got funding to do a five-year project on what we call forced use, mm -hmm. which basically was a two-week time interval in which individuals, chronic stroke survivors, would be made to use their impaired upper extremity by immobilizing the better limb in a, um, um, a sling with a cuff around the end of it uh, and uh, giving them instructions to work on their own at home to be distinguished from constraint-induced movement therapy, a term developed by Dr. Taub later, which required one-on-one -on -one formalized training and now all of its modifications. Um, of home-based rather than and distributed practice rather than intense, sometimes called signature constraint-induced movement therapy. Did the early people in constraint, uh, forced used, excuse me, did they have to have any movement available to them in yeah. that arm? So, the, so there, the, wa there was... The movement criteria came mm -hmm. from the biofeedback studies. So sometimes people don't um, realize that. Dr. Taub doesn't mention that very often in his publications, but this notion of 20 degrees of wrist extension and initiation that was just didn't come out of thin air. Those were the predictors from our earlier work in EMG biofeedback. So uh, we we know that, but not everyone does. So uh, um, there's a, a history here, and um, the the notion of m multiple reflexes rather than individual muscles, um, exploring uh, um, a way of a behavioral intervention to uh, that has a foundation based upon minimal movement criteria, um, which you probably now know has multiple modifications of constraint therapy, uh, but they're all basically variants of distributed practice over different periods of time. Um, most recently, um, that I think that, that intervention has done very well and now is, has new iterations. One paper that was just uh, published this year um, in um, Lancet Neurology by a German group has now had multiple clinics throughout Germany enrolling patients who would do their training at home with family members with a therapist coming in infrequently just to check on them, not to train them, compared to a dose-matched therapy-based, um, clinic-based uh, treatment of the upper extremity. And they're quite, quite equivalent, if not uh, early on, the constraint therapies 
superior to outcomes. So the notion is you can do this in the home. What we'd like to explore, which I think is far more practical, and once again harps upon the successes of Tai Chi, not because of the Tai Chi itself, but the impact that the socialization and group dynamic had upon compliance with the exercise form, is to consider a group activity of constraint therapy, where patients lead one, no one another under the auspices of a therapist or maybe a, a therapist aide uh, who um, has been instructed in how to work with the group. So they're not dependent upon one-on-one -on -one or a periodic half-hour treatments from a PT or an OT, but rather they work with themselves and reinforce one another. That notion has never been systematically explored at all and seems quite viable and practical and, and perhaps, perhaps financially feasible. Sounds cost-effective. Exactly. And I agree with you that, that patients can be another patient's best motivator. Absolutely. absolutely. Been there, done that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, for sure. But we tend to underutilize that. And in fact, I think one of the, the, the future values of what we do in neurorehabilitation um, is something that people have spoken about um, and is becoming more uh, sensitized to today, and that's the, uh, the therapeutic relationship. I think that one of the great instigators of change is what the therapist brings to the relationship with their patient, the extent to which that can be motivational for both the therapist and the family unit, caregivers or uh, care partners, because we are taught to believe in a multi-billion dollar pharma, pharma industry that there's something you can take, do, that's going to make everything better. We've seen that, mm -hmm. and that, that can't be further from the truth in the, in the field of neurorehabilitation. So if we can create a trusting relationship and recognize in working with patients to um, identify what they can do for themselves and what the expectations are for improvement, I think that speaks, speaks volumes. And I think that um, um, we're going to see more and more of this notion of the therapist as a facilitator uh, in a more formalized way than it's existed before. Way back when I was um, a young whippersnapper, um, I uh, asked the question, why don't we monitor the impact we have on patient behaviors since we have this intimate one-on-one -on -one relationship? Originally, I was told, well, that's what psychologists do. We don't do that. That made no sense to me. And of course, our one fallback where we do that is fear of falling. So we monitor fear behaviors, right, and right. try to change those in some capacity. But we do this all the time. And, and uh, I was fortunate enough in 2002 to, to, to be asked to give the, the Macmillan Lecture. And in that lecture, I mentioned that is it, is it true, is physical therapy truly um, a physical therapy, or is it, to some extent, a misnomer? Do we do more than physical? How much of the changes in the behaviors of our patients are driven by the physicality of what we do as opposed to how we influence their behaviors to induce further changes in their physicality? And I think there's still think to this day there's a lot of truth to that. And I suspect what we're going to be seeing more and more are behavioral measures that we make that can impact or at least correlate with some of the functional measures, especially participatory measures as we've talked about in our rehab. And that, that too has not been explored well enough. So if we're looking at these time recovery curves that are not nearly as clean as we think they are, and there's a lot of jitter and noise in them, I think the piece that's missing, in addition to tapping, uh, figuring out new ways in which we can tap to um, 
residual functional capability is the extent to which this therapeutic relationship can bolster those rates of change at different points along the timeline continuum. So I, I think that's really uh, an important aspect of who we are and what we bring to the therapeutic table. So one of the things that you've been working on is an app for upper extremity recovery. And I, I know Melissa and I have played around with the app a little bit. And it does seem to be somewhat addressing what you're talking about, but from the increase in the expertise of the therapist to select the right activities at the right point in a patient's recovery. Can you talk about your app and how did, it, how did this project come about? Okay. Uh, the truth is um, that uh, <laughs> I uh, had been working as a reviewer for the Canadian Stroke Network and um, happened to be invited to England to give a talk in Nottingham and then one over in uh, Norwich. And, and I was being transported from Norwich to Nottingham and we met the exchange was at a pub in uh, early, well, late morning. And we decided to have a few beers before we made the exchange and started lamenting the fact that we have no systematic evidence-based usability that is contemporary and said we need to do something about that. So I did have an international phone with me. I called NIH and some friends I have there. We called the Canadian Stroke Network. To make a long story short, we give them $10,000 to put together a think tank team, this is March of 2010, that would meet in October of 2010 at the combined ACMR, American Congress of Rehab Medicine, American Society for Neuro Rehab meeting in Montreal. And those $10,000 were to be used to keep people staying on after the regular meeting was over to determine whether in fact we um, could come up with the makings of an app, and we realized there had to be at least two components to this. One, uh, looking at um, an algorithm, a rational approach in decision-making. that clinical decision rule? Exactly what, what, what the algorithm is. And then the appropriate match of validated outcome measures for which there was evidence at that moment in time in that person's recovery that would be um, uh, potentially usable. Well, that sounds like a pretty straightforward task, but given the fact that everyone did this voluntarily and we had I sent out quite a few feelers uh, globally and came up with uh, 24 people who um, felt they were committed to this and uh, have stayed the course. Most of our meetings have been electronic. Uh, we have met periodically at an annual meetings and this evolved. It took a long time because we did this out of our own pocket, so to speak, and on our own time. Uh, the, the notion was quickly uh, appreciated that if one wanted this to be a global application, had to take into consideration what people could really do in the environments in which they find themselves. So when we went through this procedure, we asked ourselves two questions continuously. One is, um, uh, how important are the um, interventions at any one moment in time that once we agreed upon what they should be and how feasible are they because the two are not necessarily one and the same because feasibility in one environment doesn't mean the same as it does in another and so what you see in that app are options 
and those options are based upon what is available to the user at that moment in, in, in time. And the other thing are filters, because not all stroke patients are the same. So the decisions are made not just based upon, well, here's a person at this moment in time, and this is their movement capability, but there are corollaries, like um, the to which they have aphasia, language communications, uh, cognitive compromise, um, uh, just just a dysphagia. There's just a whole host of factors that can impact what one does. So those, if you've looked at the app, can be added to your decision tree because they begin to uh, thin out what one can do based upon the existing evidence. So that's kind of where we are. What we are see have sought the funds now to finish this up and. and we now have to take this down as a free app, is um, our, our um, resources to insert videos and visuals that will hopefully be uh, a bit more explanatory. And in that process, have to figure out a way of sustaining the app, uh, having a, a, a person who will address any questions that any potential user has, coming up with mechanisms that are reasonable for funding. This is not a for-profit Endeavor, endeavor at all. Matter of fact, that was one of the criteria for signing on. We, we're not trying to make money off of this. We're trying to sustain this and use this as a model for then exploring lower extremity, on to other diagnostic categories. Um, so we're, we're at this point now where we're we've got to figure out what do you charge people and how you monitor that and uh, how do we sustain it? Who's going to continuously update the the referencing and the database for it? It, it takes money to do that. Um, and so the only salary person we can begin to think of is the app, app keeper. We've got to pay that person for the time they're putting into this. So the, we're very blessed in that the company, Pivot, that we're working with out of Toronto, where Mark Bailey has been very fortunate to get funds, uh, is doing this almost gratis. And that's, well, the wild part is because by coincidence, not by design, the CEO's wife is an OT. Hmm. So he's and I was about to ask you if where is the OT community in terms of embracing something like this? Well, we think we think everyone is there. We much like the constraint therapy. If anyone reads any of our papers, we've never made reference to physical therapists or occupational therapists. We make reference to therapists mm -hmm. because it is um, what that means is different in different localities and environments. So um, we uh, we welcome the knowledge utilization for anyone who wants to use it and uh, don't try to, to, to draw sides. What do you think, so when I was looking at the app, I mean, I thought it was really well done and the some of it, when you would look on the yes and no questions, they were very, um, like I could imagine a patient looking through because you had described the arm motion. What do you think, like, as far as if patients would maybe go on to the app and you know, the pros and cons of that, or like where do you th see the future as far as um, like if patients would go on and kind of, is that a positive or a negative if they would go on and try and do some self-treatment or, if, I don't know. Well, well right now our, our, our intention, I don't, I don't have the answer to your question, but our intention is, is not to have it available to, to, to lay folks yeah. uh, because we don't trust the decision making. Right. How a therapist chooses to use that with their patient is up to their professional discretion. Um, it's going to be hard enough right now assuring ourselves that these apps, are, this app and its ramifications are not being misused. 
And the probability of that happening is greater, of course, in the hands of lay individuals who mm-hmm. do things that um, may not necessarily be appropriate. So uh, that's a, a question to be answered down, down, down the road. Uh, can't, the way this will work right now is even if there'll be a license to use it, and anyone who uses the app will have to log on with their own user code. Um, and so we will know who, who those, those people are, whether they're individual therapists, institutional licenses. This is way out of my league. I don't, I don't know the best way to do this, but what we want to avoid our individual users. I mean, if we want to do this as a large for-profit endeavor and not care who uses it, I think the long-term devastation of that strategy would be um, beyond repair. Because our intention, as I said before, was to, to, to build this into other um, um, opportunities. In fact, we put together a proposal to, God, it's called now, it used to be called NIDAR, but now it's the National Institute of Independent Living, da 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 at Shepherd with um, Debbie Backus to, to expand the, this app into different domains, including um, lower extremity for, for stroke and upper uh, extremity and posture for spinal cord injury and eventually to MS. But we didn't get funded. Um, unfortunately, we extracted this from a, a failed uh, rehab engineering center grant that Shepard had submitted, and this was one core of that grant, and we simply took that core and morphed it into its own application. But um, um, the reviewers, I think, had some issues with uh, um, the, why we weren't doing this on our own, and our, my feeling, unfortunately, was that uh, the um, the reviewers don't realize the amount of work that goes into the skill sets in developing an app. You really need to know what you're doing, and I would suggest that most clinicians would, would fail to the point where it costs more to try to do something this rather than to, to, to partner with a group that knows what they're doing. And I've learned a lot just in this app. You may not even notice it, but even to the point of the color backgrounds that are used uh, are based upon several suggestions indices that I know nothing about, such as what color combinations look most appealing to the eye, so that one is more bound to look at for a longer period of time, um, what font size should be for what um, circumstance, and these are, these are things professionals do, yeah. that none of us have any clue about. Um, even the, the notion of biotherapy, we want it to be something more exciting, and we literally were lectured to as to why these names come up the way they do, and people who study the longevity of recollection of names. Um, once again, something I don't think any of us would think about, but that's why you, you, you work with folks who are invested in, and yeah. believe in what you want to do, but you have to rely upon their expertise just as they rely upon ours. So when they come back to us in, this, in the development of this app, for example, and say, okay, you've listed what the inclusion criteria are and what the therapist... No, Drop that down to 25 words or less. Mm. Why? <laughs> well, it's because that's, you just want so many words per role, mm-hmm. and you don't want multiple roles. You want to be able to absorb a piece of information as quickly as you can and as accurately without having to spend a lot of time on it. Well, you're going to lose people. So, makes perfect sense, but if that's your business and you know what you're doing, you'll listen to that, and that, that takes a lot of time. We thought it was time-consuming just to amass all of the evidence and kind of lay it out, but then you really have to drill down to the specifics of what goes into that app and how it should appear. 
Yes, ma'am. Oh, I'm... Um, so have you been involved in telemedicine recently? Yes. How, how so? The first, the, the first stroke net rehab and recovery grant that's been funded nationally is in telerehabilitation. And um, this is a grant that was submitted by Steve Kramer, who's a um, neurorehabilitation neurologist out of the University of California, Irvine. And um, he um, sought multiple sites within eight, eight sites within the stroke network to partner in executing this project and we're one of them. So the question that's being posed here is um, can we educate folks who've had strokes by having them do gaming of very specifically based upper extremity activities in their home environment for eight weeks, six times a week where three of those six times is one-on-one -on -one with a therapist here so we have two systems, one we're working with, one they're working with, and three times a week, there are questions they pose by coming online and asking questions about what they're doing without the one-on-one -on -one training. And over the course of those eight weeks to do basically six weeks, three times, uh, 18 sessions of specific training, but the, the sessions get dwindled down over time because the whole idea is to withdraw the therapist as the patient learns more and more. And this is an equivalency study, so the question we're asking is, uh, across these eight sites that are participating with the exact same equipment, can the outcomes, which is mostly the ARET, the Arm Research Action Test, and some um, quality of life measures mostly drawn from, um, um, from um, the stroke impact scale, uh, do we get comparable improvements in that versus a one-on-one -on -one training um, as opposed to being a superiority trial right now? So this is a glorified proof of principle. Can you take this stuff, put it in someone's home, get them to work on it, and then um, succeed? Um, and this is a precursor to what's actually going to be happening in the, in the real world. So that's a, that's a tele-rehab project. It's the very first of the rehab and recovery projects within the stroke network, which I was explaining to you previously, is um, an NINDS, National Institute of Neurological Disease and Stroke, national initiative of 25 centers, where Georgia Stroke Net is one of them, um, that designed to do novel multi-site clinical trials in either acute interventions, prevention of secondary stroke, or rehab and recovery. So I'm the, the Georgia site co-PI for rehab and recovery, and um, we have working groups of 12 of the 25 sites that have representatives in them from uh, these three different core areas. And um, for reasons I'm not quite sure I understand, I was asked to be the, the co-chair of a working group for the country, which gives me some insights into what people are thinking and, and some of the ideas that are coming down the pike that hopefully will pass muster to, to get funded. It's not just a question of, well, you have the stroke network, just come up with an idea and get funded. The idea has to be vetted and then eventually put it together as a clinical trial approved by study sessions at NIH. So it's a, quite a process. So some neat ideas coming down the pike include, of course, some special interventions on language and aphasia. One that I'm very interested in that I hope will work is a, such a fundamental question, and that is what's the relationship between time post-stroke intensity of training, dosing, and outcome.
such a fundamental question, we have not done a really good job systematically studying. Of course, a lot of the work that Catherine Lang has done and looking at dosing has been a tremendous impetus to realizing how profoundly undertreated many of our stroke survivors are. And I wouldn't be surprised if that's true for other neurodiagnostic entities as well. So that, I hope that gets funded because that could be a, a really big um, uh, and important study. Do you, you have such a wide spectrum of research, um, you know, that you've been part of, part of. Do you have one area or one question that you feel like is your, that you're most passionate about or? At this point in my life, the one thing I'm most passionate about is the unknown and, and trying to get some sense of what needs to be known, um, both in terms of fostering a survival mode and being contemporary. And I can give you an example. I started to talk to you earlier about something that came out of the 2009 APTA Physical Therapy and Society Summit, the past meeting. Mm -hmm. I was fortunate enough to be on the steering committee for that meeting. And several of us who were on that committee agreed to do that. Just to remind you, this was an external review of the profession that was mandated by the 2006 House of Delegates with a report back to the House by June of 2009 to have other groups look at our vision statement and um, uh, offer a critical assessment of where we are and where we should be going. So there are over 24 different agencies and groups that participated in this. And um, we agreed to organize and help run this meeting, which was quite successful, with a proviso that we, the steering committee, had total control over the dissemination effort. We certainly will provide a report back to the House, which, by the way, was approved unanimously, which was the impetus for what I'm about to tell you, um, and several publications that we could control, not the board of directors of the APTA. So among the recommendations that came forth was the, the, the recognition that there are core areas in physical therapy that are being underappreciated and underserved that will be critical to the future of the profession. And those four areas are telehealth, telerehabilitation, genomic rehab interfaces, mm. um, sensing technology in virtual environments, and genomic rehabilitation interfaces, and regenerative rehabilitation. So those from that, we got some funding from APTA to create interdisciplinary groups, PTs and non-PTs working in these four areas to develop informational bases that can be shared and are being shared with anyone who has an APTA representation who wants to do that. The problem at this point is that um, IT resources at APTA were not that great, so we're getting very frustrated because for a variety of reasons. Educational units were not easily accessing this information that was being generated in terms of PowerPoints, uh, journal articles, podcasts, the kinds of things you think you might want to have. Um, and there was a need to do something about this. So we've kind of come to a standstill because I, I personally think this is critical to the future of our profession because these are contemporaries that are not going to go away. Um, we've had an opportunity now at two education leadership meetings to talk to all of the PT programs about this and there is no one who fails to buy in, in any program and the reason for that is we've never presented this as something for the haves and have-nots uh, for the research one institutions can have great access to this information and use it while the 
smaller programs cannot. We deliberately are making this accessible to everyone. So everyone buys into that. The problem is the ease of accessibility, and that's been a stumbling block at this point. What we've been able to, um, I think, propose now, and hopefully will be approved, is the development of a council, a first, first, we call ourselves Frontiers and We Have Science and Technology Council, made up of um, representation of PTs and non-PTs. No one gets paid for this. Everything's doing this out of the kindness of their heart. And section representatives who govern these four areas and potentially future areas have yet to be described to create this group that will work together cohesively to, to move these initiatives forward. So that's kind of where we are. The proposal is just about ready to go to the Board of Treasures of the APTA, and we hope we'll have something out in front of everyone by the combined sections. Oh, that'll be good. So yeah. that's, you asked me where my passions are right yeah. now. Yeah. And you know, as you've been, on, been around for several years, I, at this point I don't particularly care what people think. <laughs> I just do what I want to do and, uh, and like to think it might have some meaning. Um, and uh, uh, that's what that's what drives me to answer your question. I love the work that we're doing. Yeah. We've got lots of neat research projects, but yep. you want to be spurred on by what you see and what you hear. Um, and when I hear people talking about um, genomic rehab interfaces like uh, brain-derived neural growth factor and polymorphisms and when we all have our, we all have our gen genome, and we know that the polymorphism for um, brain-derived growth factor is manifest in those 25% of people who have it as an inability to learn motoric movements, and they come to us and say, "How are you going to use this when you treat patients? What are we going to say?" I mean, I can give you example after example of this. Yeah. It's, it, it's happening exponentially, and we need to be positioned to address these questions. First, fundamentally, from the education we get, and then from the applications. Another example of a protein-derived factor mm -hmm. that um, uh, is part of a genetic engineering process right now that is going to infuse, create the proliferation of osteoblasts in osteoporosis especially for women who are osteoporotic. Oh. So the question, oh. well, what influence will that have on how we teach weight-bearing activities? Do we do it the same way? Do we do it differently? Yeah. You could ask one question after another, yeah. and this is simply an effort of trying to take these resources and bring them together, because the days of living and working in isolation of science and technology, they're gone. They're absolutely yeah. gone. And I would argue that tomorrow's patient who's brought up on technologies is going to demand that these kind of interfaces exist and we need to be prepared to, to make best use of them. So you're a busy guy. Uh, you going to retire? Uh, I guess so at some point. I haven't really thought much about it. Um, so, so, so what is well, Steve? I, I am retired. I mean, I just, uh, <laughs> I, I spend a lot of time with my family, my grandkids. I spend much time watching them grow up and play balls. I do other things. But, um, um, and when I feel like uh, no one cares what I have to say, or I look at my colleagues around here and can honestly say to myself, well, let's just step back and I'm starting to do that now, by the way, and feel really good about the fact that I'm not needed um, as I define what value is, then that's the time to retire. But while I still have 
couple of neurons that are functioning. Uh, and someone wants to listen, I'll, I'm willing to give it a go. What would you do? Anything out yeah. of the ordinary? Yeah, what I've always wanted to do, be a writer. Um, I write, uh, well, I write fiction. What are you writing now? <laughs> well, well I, I want to be a fiction writer. A lot of people nice. claim they look at my publications. And they, are, <laughs> they are fiction. But, uh, uh, yeah, I'd be a writer. Like nice. Writer. Yeah. I like them. I am a strong admirer of, of Mark Twain. Yeah. And I would like to, to write humorous stories that have a, a moral. That's mm. my genre. That's what I would be doing. Is there anything you want to share right now? Yeah, I mean, I would say this to any therapist, and not just to those who are interested in, in the, uh, the improving the nervous system of patients with pathologies that affect movement and cognition. If you have an idea, and I hope this will be derived from this discussion, uh, never allow anyone to talk you out of it, and follow your dreams. Because unless um, someone can convince me that reincarnation is, is viable, uh, you only go around once. So you to make the, the best use of it and feel as though you're doing something for humanity that goes beyond your own self-interest. Well, I want to thank you very, very much for taking this time to talk yeah, with us. Thank you. And yeah, Melissa, thank you for joining sure. also. Thanks for having This me. was great. Oh, it's great. It's terrific, yeah. I'm glad you were tolerating this. As long <laughs> this as you is have. great. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we'll see you at CSM? Yeah, for sure. For sure. We'll doing that. Um, just send in, I, I, I was telling Britta that I sent in the uh, the outline for the two-hour symposium was just about two or three hours ago. How oh, nice! So doing this uh, predicting models and stroke. So all right. That uh, it'll be it'll be great. It'll be terrific. It's a terrific uh, cast of characters. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, uh, I hope that is the kind of thing you. Want yeah, to that was perfect. It was great, well, and and so much for our fifteen minutes. Now at an hour three. Is minutes. that what it is? Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> Time flew. It really did. Yeah. All of a sudden, I yeah. looked up at the clock and I went, yeah. "Oh my goodness!" But you really wanted to keep these down to fifteen minutes. You let this down. I think you said minutes. you were going to. What we're going to do is is kind of select a few things and put a little podcast together, and then we'll keep the full length, and so people have the option of doing a, a mini. I think or, it's great. I think it's yeah. all really interesting. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. We don't it, it's just trying to think outside the box, and right. we we need to do that. Yeah. Hardest, hardest part of all of this is change. Change is difficult for people, and um, there's so much that's being discovered that if you if you don't yeah. embrace change, we're going to be left behind. We can't we can't afford to do that. That's what Tom. Tom you talked to Tom with the my partner for the before you did the podcast for the Neurosig. I, I think you guys did a yeah. run through, okay. but he does IT or technology consulting, and he's always asking like, "What are you guys doing? Like, do you think you could do this into like an app?" Like. You know, it's just all the technology side is moving, and if we're not like Ex- moving right. into it, that's why when we have this course here that Randy Trumbauer and I teach. We take third-year DPT students in the last semester and put them in the classroom with bioengineering students, yeah. and they have to come up with a problem that's presented by a patient, not by us, uh. by a patient, and then they have to work in pairs and separate teams and come up with problem-solving solutions that's in the form of a grant application. Like, um, and we'll sometimes give them bogus information uh, that, as though they had gotten it. Yeah. And then they critique one another's work. That's excellent. That's in the regular PT program? Yeah. It's an elective, yeah. Nice. I, so wish I don't know of any rule, by the way, that says that a PT needs to be educated exclusively in the classroom without other people. As a matter of fact, I would argue it's a disservice today. Yeah. Uh, so no. 
Wow. I'm off my meds, so you better be careful. That's so good. <laughs> have you ever been to, have you been to, I went to Hannibal, I went to school at Wash U for undergrad. Oh, yeah. no, we and uh, we went to um, Hannibal, Missouri. Oh, I've been there. Right the town. Matter of fact, there was a neuroscience meeting there in 1989 oh. Oh. that, and we, a group of us, including Rick Siegel and John Wolpe and I, at each of these meetings, we'd get there a day early, uh-huh. and we'd rent a car and go somewhere. Uh-huh. And for the St. Louis Neuroscience yeah. meeting, we went to Hannibal, that and then cool. went to, um, uh, uh, John, is a, his hobby is a Civil War. Uh-huh. There was a, uh, wherever Daniel Boone was from in Missouri, yeah. there was a Daniel Boone, um, <laughs> historical society meeting and we rushed from Hannibal to get to that meeting so that John <coughs> could attend that. That's amazing. That's and so this funny. old rickety car that we could get very on the cheap for <laughs> traveling through uh, Missouri. We covered a lot of territory. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. That's so yeah, we've been to Hannibal, right? Yeah, when oh, you were absolutely. saying there's a meeting there, I was like, no way, there's a meeting in Hannibal. Like it was this No, it was in St. Louis when we went. We, yeah. got we always would used to get, now they start the meetings earlier. Mm-hmm. Well, we used to start them on Sunday, so we'd get there on Friday night and spend Saturday traveling somewhere, doing something That's great. as a group of guys. We usually rented a van. Yeah. And we'd go somewhere. Oh, like that would yes. be a van. Yeah, we went so down you to, and Rick and... Well, one year we went down to Homa, Louisiana, when the meeting... Ham- was it Hammond or Homa? Homa. Oh. Oh. Looking for David Duke stickers. David Duke, <laughs> oh, my racist. Gosh. <laughs> <laughs> that's so yeah. funny. Yeah. Uh, what meeting was this? I'm oh, sorry, I was. These are all society for neuroscience. Oh, that's gosh, um. I would like to go on that van trip. And ask <laughs> Rift, ask Rift next time. That's yes. Let's see if we're invited. We should go. I don't think we do <laughs> it anymore because anymore? because now they start the meetings earlier. Oh. So it used to be nice because you could. You'd want to get there before Saturday. Mm-hmm. It used to be a time where if you stay over on Saturday night, plane rides. Were yeah. But they didn't start the meeting until Sunday, so we'd get there like on Friday night, early yeah. Friday night, and we all would meet up and have all have a pre plan for what we're gonna, where we're going to travel yeah. on Saturday. That would be great, like great minds going on a like yeah. just fun. I would call them adventure. great minds if you were listening I to the like great. I think those are <laughs> any any researcher that develops a great idea over a beer in England. I think is on the right one. way on the right yeah. path. No, we've been thinking about that for a while, about not, I mean, we've got to do something to, to, yeah. to make things available and accessible to people and synthesize information in mm-hmm. a very dynamic way. Oh, that's great. 